0: Good morning, church. It's great to see you. Welcome. Beautiful day. Trust that uh, you're sensing God's presence already in our service. It's been a good weekend for us. We're talking about the power of an invitation. Let me ask you a question. How many of you made an important decision in your spiritual life as a result of someone inviting you to consider Jesus or attend a church service or take uh, take in a special event And that was a difference-making moment in your life because someone invited you to do that. Would you just raise your hand? Yeah, yeah, it's about half the people. It is a huge number of folks who have been influenced by the power of an invitation. And today we want to talk about a woman who was under the influence of that kind of experience. This woman in Mark chapter 5, she was the woman with the issue of blood. And we're going to see the healing power of Jesus on display in her life as a result of this powerful invitation she received to consider Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 5. If not, we'll project these words on the screen. I'm going to look at verses 24 through 34. And as is our custom, I'll invite you to stand as you're able to hear God's word. Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years You see the people crowding against you, his disciple answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I mean, God inspires today through this important story. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Anyone here ever remember a time in your life when you were rejected? You know, put aside, pushed out to the margin? Yeah, I I could imagine that there are people in our congregation who could tell you rather dramatic stories about being pushed to the side, rejected by family or friends. I want to tell you that in my life, I've been very fortunate in this regard with only a few memories of being rejected. And the reason for that is because I live at the center of things. I am in the place of privilege. That's my story. I'm white. I'm male. I'm postgraduate educated. I'm employed. I'm ordained. I come from a prosperous family. I am relatively healthy. And when compared to virtually everyone else in the world, I am rich. So you put all that together, and I tend to be at the center of privilege. To live in the margin means to be illiterate or unemployed or underemployed or unemployable. Living in the margin is to be denied necessary services and care, basic care. To live in the margin is to be homeless, to have no physical or psychological or social or economic protection. To live in the margin is to reach a glass ceiling because of your race or your age or your gender Yeah. This woman in our story today, she is a person on the social margins. She is pushed out there. And I just might remind you that reading this story about her life will be different depending on your particular perspective. For example... If you read it from the center of things, like I inevitably do, I have to be very careful that I don't use the story to reinforce the privileges that I've already inherited. Because if I do, I'm not letting the Bible read me. I'm just reading the Bible. Let me contrast it this way. I suspect that I read this story from a different perspective, say, than a young, black, single mother who may be underemployed trying to make it with her kids. Just a different perspective. And so, as we get into this story, my hope is to encourage you, kind of push on you, to imagine what it would be like to live in this woman's world, and the amazing breakthrough that Jesus provides for her. The first point is this: it's on your outline. It's her condition. You'll need the word condition. A crowd followed Jesus on the way to Jairus's house. He was going to minister to Jairus's daughter, and this crowd was pushing, and it seemed rather dynamic. It was a massive crowd, it was a growing crowd, it was growing in momentum, it had its own life, its own energy, but in spite of that dynamic, there was an even more dramatic story about to unfold in the midst of this crowd. Verse 25 says, there was a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. Now Mark's detailed description of this woman suggests that she is taking steps downward. Each descriptive term that is used for her indicates she is on her way down she may be near the end she is in despair she is isolated she is lonely she doesn't have any resources physically she's probably anemic pale listless wasting away haggard maybe even smelly she is a woman on the margins there's no support for her no support group we have in our culture hospice care for end of life we have uh, small group and special issue care support groups of all types and forms. We have within the church groups and prayer groups that lend support. This woman, if you think about a trampoline, she has no springs in, around her trampoline. When she lands, she just thuds hard on the ground. The book of Leviticus gives us greater detail and, and actually is explicit about her particular condition. Leviticus chapter 15 says, If a woman is bleeding, not only her own person, but anything she touches, sits on, or comes in contact with, is also rendered ritually unclean and must be restored to ritual purity through an elaborate cleansing ritual. This is part of the Old Testament law, which not just pertained to religious activity, but also civil activities. And so this is a commingling of those things where this woman with this issue of blood is labeled ritually unclean. And she suffered with this for 12 years it meant she had no support she couldn't go to the temple she couldn't worship she'd had no religious support she she could not touch anyone she could not be touched by anyone if she had children she couldn't care for them if she had a husband he would have likely divorced her because she cannot be touched and so she is literally alone she is pushed literally to the, to the edge, to the margins of her culture. She's ill, she's debilitated, she's cut off from all human and religious support, she is lonely, she is labeled unclean, she's under a cloud of moral suspicion. She was a woman at the margins. Have I convinced you she's out there? Or are you convinced that she is way pushed to the side, rejected as much as anyone can be rejected? Now, what we, uh, what we know about the culture of that day is that the Jews had a number of other resources that they would use to try to get help with their physical needs and, and other social needs. And they wrote these things down in a collection of Jewish laws and, and lore, kind of, kind of uh, uh, old wives tales uh, combined with, with uh, you know, kind of old traditional wisdom. And they put it down in a book called the Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D. And this book can be uh, read today, and it's very interesting. In her particular case with this issue of blood, uh, there are 11 suggestions on ways to remedy this condition in the Talmud. Let me give you five of these, and you might find them humorous. The first one is, Drink wine containing powder made of rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. And this comes under the heading, If it tastes that bad, it must be good for you. So, you know, drink this nasty stuff, and you'll feel better. Number two, take a draught of Persian onions cooked in wine while someone commands you rise up out of your issue of blood. In other words, shout it out. That might do it. Number three, a sudden shock. In other words, scare scare the out of them. So they, you know, you wait behind the door, they walk around and you bah! and you know the shock alone might remedy the issue. Here's number four, carry the ash of an ostrich egg in a linen rag in summer and a cotton rag in winter. And what could that mean? Who knows? (laughs) clue. Number five, carry at all times a barley corn which has been found in the dung of a white she-ass. Let me say that again because it's really fun to say. (laughs) Carry at all times a barley corn which has been found in the dung of a white she-ass. And, of course, this is, if it comes through that process unscathed, it must have magical powers. (laughs) Now, you know, we find these rather humorous, but she would not have found them humorous. She was a person who may have been drinking vile potions, trying to get better, and hunting through dung piles, trying to find the right remedy, being scarred by well-meaning doctors till her money was gone. Downward, she moves, and at the end of it, only despair. And the Bible says she did not grow better, but rather grew worse. Wow. I wonder if you know anyone who lives on the margins. Know anyone like that? They're the ones that sit off by themselves at school. At recess, they tend to be alone. In the lunchroom, they tend to be off by themselves know anyone on the margins for whatever reason they're just they're pushed out there they don't fit in it doesn't work for them they haven't been assimilated well they they've got they've usually got some issues and they're pushed out you know anyone like that in your own life in your own travelings these are the people who are socially marginalized and someone ought to reach out to them you also know, in fact, I would su- submit to you that every single one of us in this room, we know other people in our travels, and our associations. They, they are a- across the hall at work. They are across the classroom at school. They are... They are in our neighborhood, they are in our families, they are all around us. We meet them in the mall, we meet them across the fence, we we meet them at the ball field, we meet them in the coming and goings of our lives. And these are people who are spiritually marginalized. They, They are out there on the perimeter of any kind of spiritual resource. What I would like to challenge you to do to think about today is to try to remember what it was like in your life before you became a Christian person and before you realized the amazing grace that God provides to your life no matter what happens to you. And how, how easy it is for us to separate ourselves from any connection with a former life when we did not know the amazing love that God had for us. We even comment about it from time to time when we face particular challenges or crisis or turmoil or confusion in our lives and God helps us through a moment like that, a season like that. We pop through the other side and we actually hear ourselves saying things like, I don't know how a person makes it if they don't know God. I don't know how a person could possibly experience that without God's grace in their lives. Maybe you've heard someone say that out loud. Maybe you've heard yourself say it or think it in the past. And it's true, isn't it? How do people cope? Without a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. And the answer is they don't cope. They don't cope well. And there are people in our community right now, this day, who have gotten out of bed and they've stumbled out of their out of their bedroom and they're wondering if they're gonna be able to make it one more week. They wonder if their marriage will survive, they wonder if their kids will ever straighten out. They wonder if they can tolerate that job any longer. And they don't have the resource and they don't don't have the hope that God alone can provide for their lives. And I wonder how many such people you know, people who live on the spiritual margins and need the help of God. The song goes like this, empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams... He's the open door. Do you believe it? You know, knowing Jesus really matters. And that's why people like us should be sensitive to people who need the Lord. Well, that leads us in this story to the rebirth of hope. That's the second point in the outline. You will want to write down the word hope. What an important word, hope. The rebirth of hope. And I could easily spend the rest of our time this morning talking about the first portion of verse 27 because it simply says, I'll put this on the screen for you because this is really central to the point we want to bring home today and that is, she heard reports about Jesus. You see that? She heard reports about Jesus. So the last step for her, before stepping off into the grave, she heard, probably rather overheard, someone speaking about a young prophet from Nazareth on whom God's spirit rested with healing power, and she was filled with hope. Let me put this statement on the screen because this is really the point of the whole message today. Casual Christian conversation has pointed more people to Christ than all the sermons that have ever been preached. You believe that? It's absolutely true, you know. It's absolutely true. Casual conversation. People hearing about a good report regarding Jesus. That's how people come to Jesus. You know, the night that I was converted, I just celebrated my birthday this past week. You didn't know that. Just had my 44th birthday. 44. What are you laughing about? Oh, I forgot to mention, is my spiritual birthday. My spiritual birthday. Now, I know I look 44, so you could believe that, but my spiritual birthday occurred just this past week, the anniversary 44 years ago. I was invited to church. It was a Friday night, and I was 16 years old, and what do high school students do on Friday nights in September in Indiana? They go to the football game. The high school football game, that's what they do. And that's where I was headed. And I had my letter jacket on and I was headed out the door. I was excited. Go to the high school football game. And my mother, my mother said, Greg, where are you going? I'm going to the football game. No, I don't think you should go to the football game tonight. You should go to church. What are you talking about? I'm not going to church. It's Friday night. You know, geez, I have to put up with that on Sunday morning, but I don't have to do it Friday night. Now, you should note that my mother at the time, while a churchgoer, was not a a Christian. You know, sometimes there's a distinction that can be made between churchgoing and Christianity. In this case, my mother did not know Jesus, and yet she invited me to church. She said, I think you ought to go. In fact, she was so persistent about it and insistent about it that I finally gave in. I just thought, if, if I don't go, she'll never, she'll never let up on me. And so I just said, okay, I'll go to church. Jeez. And I thought, well, you know, I'll serve my time and get out of there, and then everybody will be happy. And then I got to church that night, and there wasn't any great service. There wasn't even a great preaching or anything like that. But what they did was they, they propped up some people who simply told their story And one of those people was a 15-year-old girl who was near my age, of course, and she stood up and she said, Look, this is the way my life was like, my family life was like before I met Jesus, and this is how God intersected my life with His love, and when I came to understand God's grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and this is my life as a result of inviting Jesus to become my Savior. And in the course of that 10 or 12-minute personal testimony, I became acutely aware of my need for God. It occurred to me that that young woman has a relationship with God that I know nothing about. And it moved me to the point where I said yes to Jesus myself. Because my own mother invited me to church. That's a good story, isn't it? Now, how about this? God used my life and my sister's lives to influence my mother, and she came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ because of our witness. You never know what's going to happen when you invite someone to church. And this woman, because she is untouchable and outcast and on the margins of society, she covers herself one day and she's walking down the street careful not to touch anything or to touch anyone or to be touched by anyone. Careful about this. This was her life. And in the weakness of her own, own physicality, she's moving down the street and she probably overhears someone. Maybe you can imagine two women in front of her, and one says to the other, have you heard about this young rabbi named Jesus? He's coming to our town this Saturday. He's going to teach in our synagogue. And, it's, and, and people are saying that God's healing power is in his life, and he actually touches lepers and other unclean people. And boom, there it was. There it was. There it was the spark of hope, the spark of hope, where she is completely hopeless and she is completely undone and she is completely without resource and support in her life. Now, for the first time, probably in years, that small spark of hope. Can I just say that hope's a big deal? Hope is a big, strong deal in our lives. I used to think as a younger person, that hope was just another piece of the pie. But as I've gotten older, listen, hope is the pie. Hope is the whole pie. People who do not have hope do not do well. People who have hope seem to make it. And hope now comes to her life. It's an amazing moment. Some of you are old enough to remember this name. See if you remember. Madeline Murray O'Hare. Madeline Murray O'Hare. How many of you remember that name? Is there, these are the old people in the room. For those of you too young to remember Madeline Murray O'Hare, let me tell you who she was. She was the outspoken atheist whose court case, which landed in the Supreme Court of the United States, banned prayer from public schools in America many years ago. She had a son, William Murray. What you may not know, although probably suspected, is that William Murray's home life was also void of the affection and stability that children need. He learned to hate his mother long before he understood why. In his early 30s, he succumbed to alcoholism. A.E. meetings were when he first heard the idea that there was a higher power who may have created him and actually cared for him. And later on in his life, he came to a meaningful faith in Jesus Christ. He got up in the middle of the night, drove to an all-night department store where he bought his first Bible. And I pick up the story in his own words, and I quote, "'I drove to my apartment and read the book of the Bible written by the great physician Luke. There I found my answer, not the book itself, but Jesus Christ.'" Within days, my attitudes began to change. He said, my hatred began to vanish and the love of Christ took over my being. He said, I no longer intensely hated my mother. Now I really wanted to love my mother, whereas before I had only wanted revenge. I began to see my mother for what she truly was, a sinner just like me. That's some insight there, right? But here's the point I want to make. William Murray didn't hear about God in church. He didn't hear about God for some preacher. Listen, he heard about God in an AA meeting. And again, not from the preacher, but from a fellow drunk. And that's the point, isn't it? That means that all of us now are qualified to share a good word, a good report about Jesus, to offer someone the same hope that we have found. And we're not perfect. We're not perfect. We're We're all in AA, aren't we? We're all recovering from something. Every last one of us. Yeah, that's right. Everybody's got issues. Everybody's got baggage. Everybody carried a bag in with them today. We've all got stuff. Every one of us. But that doesn't change the fact that God loves us and that he has extended his grace toward us and that he has forgiven us and, and grafted us into his family. And we're not perfect. In fact, we're not going to be perfect. We're just forgiven We're forgiven, and therefore we have hope. And this same hope that we have received is the hope that we offer to others. And it's the invitation that we give to anyone who lacks this hope, that the same God who has forgiven me will forgive you. The woman's hope was gone, but now the word of God in the form of village gossip. And Jesus now kindles afresh and anew the flame of hope In the midst of the coldness and the hopelessness of our own heart. Hope is a powerful thing. I mentioned that. Folks often get locked in the past, frozen in the present. But hope is the invitation to an expectant tomorrow. Everyone needs to know that tomorrow is going to be okay. Because God is there waiting for us by his grace. So she's walking down the street. And she overhears. And there it was. The next verse, 28, says... If I touch his garment, I shall be made well. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made whole. And you may think, well, that's an odd response. That's kind of superstitious, isn't it? I mean, but actually it's not superstition at all. In the next chapter of Mark's gospel, chapter 6, we read that wherever Jesus went into villages, towns, countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces, and they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak and all who touched him were healed. Pretty cool, huh? If I could just get to the hem of his garment. In, in, the, in the book of Acts, we read in chapters 5 and 9 that in Peter's case, the apostle Peter, even his shadow cast on those who were sick laid along the street. If his shadow would fall on the sick, they were being made well. Interesting, amazing, right? In chapter 9 of, of the book of Acts, we find cloths being placed on Peter uh, on, on the apostle Paul's body, and as they would take these cloths and place them on the sick, they were recovering, be made well. And so that's weird, that's odd, that's, that's, that's interesting. But listen, we believe, we believe in this. We believe in this. Now, let me put it in this context. We, we, believe, we believe in sacraments, don't we? We have sacraments like the Lord's Supper, and, and, and these men had become living sacraments because they were immersed in the presence of God, the power of God. So even their shadow, even cloths from their bodies touching people would affect the healing grace of God. And we've, we still believe in the, the sacramental work of God in today's world. We have the sacrament of communion, for example. We believe that, that bread and wine can actually mediate the grace of God to our lives. Physical elements can mediate can be the conduit through which God's grace can flow to our lives. We believe that. We sure do. And this is what's happening in this case. And so the day comes and the moment comes and this crowd is gathering and the momentum of this crowd jostling up against Jesus, eager to touch him and to be with him. And now she makes her move and she has to take a great risk because she is not to be touching anyone or be touched. But she's in a desperate place, and so she makes her way. And in my imagination, this is how it plays out for me, that she times it just right, and she works her way through the crowd. And in the last moments, she falls down on her hands and knees, and she crawls the last few few yards, and then she reaches out, just as Jesus is passing, and she reaches as far as she can. And the very back of his robe, the very last little tassel dangling as he's moving, touches the longest of her fingers just on the end of her fingertip with the slightest little grazing up against her fingers she, and she senses the touch of his robe and suddenly the power of God flows through her bam and she something's happened she knows immediately that her condition has been healed and Jesus stops he says who touched me the disciples say, well, is that a trick question? What do you mean who, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. We can't keep the, we have, we have no crowd control. Everybody's, everybody's touching you. You're getting buffeted sideways, sideways, up and down the street. What do you mean who touched you? He, he said, no, no, somebody, somebody really touched me. <laughs> I felt virtue, he said. I felt strength, power flow out of me. And he stopped and he said, who was it? Who was it that touched me? Which one of you touched me? <laughs> and now this woman, she, she is shocked because, oh God, her greatest fear now has been realized. She has broken the rules and she is about to be punished. And so she is afraid and she is trembling And she walks up and she says, it's me. And she falls down on her face. And someone just, as she looks up from her her prostrate position, she looks up and one of the women recognizes, oh my God, I know who she is. She's unclean. people, the crowd, you know, backs up further. And now this moment. The Bible says that she not only confessed that she had touched him, But the Bible says that she told Jesus her whole story, the whole truth, told him the whole truth. Let me ask you a question. How long would it take to tell the whole truth of a 12-year story? Took a little while. Wow. And now the last point, she's face-to-face with Jesus. Face-to-face with Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Imagine yourself face-to-face with Jesus. I mean, face-to-face. Imagine it. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What's happening to you? You're face-to-face. And so I wouldn't be face-to-face with Jesus. I, just, I would fall at his feet. That's my instinct, just to fall at his feet, cover my head. What if Jesus said, no, 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 get up, get up. I need to see you in the face. He insists. He insists that you're there. You look him face to face. What What are you going through? See Jesus face to face. (laughs) What's happening to you? Hmm. Are you happy? Are you sad? Are you thankful? Are you ashamed? first answer is yes and now she is face to face with him and after she makes her confession tells her story he has one sentence for her, one line and each word is very poignant first thing he says to her is daughter Now, what does he do with that one word? Daughter. He doesn't say, you stinker. You rule breaker. You nasty thing. He says, daughter. So now she's forgiven. Now she's included. Now she's part of the family. All the ostracization that she's been experiencing, that's all wiped away. And he says, be at peace and be freed from your illness. The word freed there is a Greek word, sozo, S-O-Z-O, sozo, sozo, S-O-Z-O, sozo. It's a two-sided word, uh, two sides of the same coin, this Greek word, sozo. On one hand, it means healed, physically healed. She experienced that. On the other side, It means made whole or saved uh, forgiven spiritually so on one hand it's about physical wholeness and on the other hand it's about relational wholeness with God and others the word sozo it's a powerful word it's a powerful word and he says to her daughter your faith has made you whole be free from your disease be free be sozo forgiven of your sins, restored in your body, reclaimed by the community, given back your dignity, given the hope that you deserve, just like everyone needs hope. And her life is once and for all transformed. And all of that beautiful grace, that transforming power, taking place in this woman's life for one reason. She'd heard a good report about Jesus. She got an invitation. Someone said, you need to, Show up at this time, at this place, because Jesus is passing by. Do you feel that? Do you understand that? Do you get the significance of that? You never know what's going to happen when you invite somebody to come to church with you. You just don't know what's going to happen. You know, I ask you at the very beginning of the service if an invitation was critical to your journey of faith. And many of you, perhaps most of you, said, yes, an invitation helped me. My wife raised her hand. Who invited you to church the night you came to Jesus? I did. Ooh. Listen, you never know what you're going to get if you invite somebody to church. I got a Christian wife. Do you think I have any regrets having invited her to church that night? Mm-mm. I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. Did it take courage for me to do it? Yeah. Did I have to overcome some barriers to do it? Yeah. I have to climb over the threshold to do it? Yeah. Did I have to overcome my fears to do it? Mm -hmm. Have to push through? Yeah. There's great power, friends, in this kind of invitation, and I want to challenge you to consider it. These past uh, several weeks, we've been giving you these inserts called the five blessing. I know many of you have been praying for people. Five five people, five blessings, five days a week, five weeks. And you've been doing this for your neighbors. And what I want to do this morning as we conclude our service is I want you to take a few moments, and this is a little heavier stock this week, so we're going to ask you to do something with this. So grab this from your bulletin, if you will. And we've got some pens. If you need a pen, we can help you with one. And I want you to just write the name of the people you've been praying for name or names. Some of you have been praying for five people very diligently, faithfully, and you know their names. You can write them down. Maybe there's just one or two that are poignant in your mind right now. Write those names down. And as soon as you do that, we're going to sing two songs here at the end. During this first song, I want you to write those names. And after you've done that, I just want you to get up and come forward and hand it to the folks who will be receiving them here at the front. And then we're actually going to hang them up and display display them and pray over them today so that we can feel the full effect of all of this intercession that we've been engaging the last several weeks. So, so fill these out. If you need a pen, just lift a hand. And as we sing, and, and, and then bring them forward and hand them to the attendants, and we'll take it from there, okay? Thank you so much.